Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Okay, so I am Amber Kenyon. I'm with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. And we're going to be running these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching every second Wednesday throughout the winter. The link is going to stay the same. So if you've already registered once, you don't have to register again. You'll just continue to get emails every second week reminding you that it's that Wednesday. And if you no longer want the emails for some reason, you can reply and just let me know to take you off the list. However, you will break my heart. So be prepared for that. So with all of that being said, tonight we have Don Campbell with us. And Don is with Holistic Management and he is a rancher as well. And Steve with us, my husband. Um, Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching and introduce Don? Yes, I definitely can. Uh, she didn't seem very excited about that last part there. Um, Steve's but, with uh, us. <laughs> well, and my husband. He, he kind of <laughs> drags around. We were at an organic conference a while ago and they referred to me as Amber's husband. So that was nice for me. It was really cool because I was kind of in the background. I didn't have to be forefront all the time. So I don't mind that at all. Um, yes, I'm really excited about tonight. Uh, Don Campbell has been a mentor of mine for many, many years. Um, I'm going to say back in the late 90s, somehow I, w- I managed to wiggle my way into the Devon Holistic Management Club. And I, I was trying to get a holistic management course. I was trying to take one and they just weren't being held back then and in our area anyway. And I could not get one. So I basically taught myself holistic management, read the book. I saw Alan Savory at one of the Devon Club meetings and uh, Dennis Wabaser. I was the annoying teenager or college guy that was bothering Dennis all the time. And I was extremely grateful for Don and, and Dennis allowing me to be a part of their group. So, um, and Don's been a huge uh, mentor of mine ever since. I still remember Don. Um, you'll you'll remember this doing presentations uh, with the plastic slides on the overhead projector, and you're flipping them. <laughs> I still have my very first one. I remember you were. That's when I first saw you too. You're flipping plastic slides on the overhead. So, yeah, it's been a long time, and and I'm grateful. I I consider Don Campbell the the grandfather of holistic management in Canada. So. Um, I don't know if he, he he knows I consider him that, but um, he's a huge mentor to, to me in the, in the long run. So tonight's topic, I'm going to let Don kind of introduce it, but it's uh, on droughts, decisions, and mindset, or keeping your sanity. We weren't sure how we were going to word that. Sanity or well-being. Sanity. Well-being, yeah, something like that. So Don, I'm going to turn it over to you, and you can uh, introduce yourself a bit and maybe introduce what you what you want to talk about tonight. Thank you very much, Steve and Amber. It's really nice to be here. Uh, say to all, hello to all the folks that are on. I see there's 85 people on there. That's great. Uh, most of you, excuse me, most of you I wouldn't have met, but that doesn't matter. I think it was Will Rogers said, uh, a stranger, just a friend we haven't met yet. So I consider you all to be friends. Hopefully we can have a good discussion. We can learn a few things together and see how it goes. When Steve phoned me, he asked me what topic I wanted to talk about. And I said, well, you know, in my mind, the biggest issue in Western Canada and Western Canada and the Western USA is drought. So I think that's a, an obvious topic that we all should be concerned about. Now, some of you may not have drought. Good for you. But that's a big topic most places. And it certainly is in our little corner of the world. So I thought that was important. And then the next thing I threw up was decision-making. 
And I'm sure some of you will be well-versed in holistic management. Some of you have some knowledge, some may have none knowledge. It doesn't matter. But basically, holistic management is how to make better decisions. The basis of holistic management is decision-making. So what better time to use a better-making decision process than when we're in pressure under a drought? And the third little issue was mental health. And in our society, for some reason, I don't know why, but I think we're all quite aware there's a stigma about mental health. Like if you got a broken leg, you know, you go to the doctor, you get a cast, everybody, oh, isn't that too bad? If you got mental health, you're afraid to go. And if you do go, you don't tell anybody. And nobody comes up and tries to console you. So there's a real stigma about that. And I think we, to help each other, we need to overcome that. Because if you don't keep your sanity and your mental health, what's the point? Nothing's going to work. So I thought those three topics were all related. And, you know, um, with that, I guess we could start with some questions or we can keep talking. Steve and I can flip it back and forth for a bit. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with you 100%, Don. This is the, the perfect time to be talking about mental health because the drought was stressful on a lot of people. Right? And, and from there, it's hard to make decisions if you don't already have plans ahead and then it gets stressful. And, and there's a lot of people stressed right now about the price of hay, about everything. That's a serious topic. And a couple of months ago, I did write an article in the Canadian Cattlemen and the Stockman Grass Farmer. And I, I did want a story about me and the mental health I went through, you know, and how to how to try and fight your way through it. So I'll throw that link in the in the chat for anybody who wants to uh, to to read it as well. But it, it is a serious issue in agriculture. And we don't always have to be the tough guy. <laughs> I would like to hear from you too, how you guys manage your own personal stress levels so that your mental health stays at a, a manageable level. Okay, well, I can jump in on that one. Thanks for the question, Amber. Um, personally, I handle it probably in two main ways. One is I'm a person of faith, so I pray and I believe there's a God and that helps me a lot in my life. The other way, as I've been blessed through my whole life with uh, mentors and role models. And there's lots of things that I don't know, and I'm confused. I'm not sure what to do, but I've never been in a position where I couldn't turn to somebody and phone them and say, look, I got this situation. What should I do? And I know them well enough that they're concerned about me. They want my best outcomes, and they're tremendous. Like having role models to call on is just unbelievably good. And I've had that, like uh, Steve mentioned, the Devon Club. That was the group of us that took the holistic management course in 1989, I believe it was. And we set up what we called the Devon Club because that's where we took the course just south of Edmonton. We were actually in the alcoholic recovery center where we studied. And when we got back to Lloyd, we set up a management club. That management club met for 25 years, almost on a monthly basis. Now, you can imagine the kind of support that gives you because you can turn to somebody and say, you know, I'm having trouble with my finances, with my marriage, with my grazing, with whatever, raising my kids. And they've got an answer because every one of us in our home situation, we've got the blinders on because we know how it's supposed to be. But when you go to the neighbors, you're not personally involved. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Do it this way. Think about that differently. Look at it differently. And that is such a huge advantage. And that really, I would uh, figure I'm very, very successful in my life. I've been living my dream for years and years. And most of it comes from the wonderful people that I've been able to associate with and learn from. Yeah, well said. 
For me, it was, I mean, I've, I've been through a lot of different issues in my life. Everybody has, right. We've all got our down times and, and I've been on a emotional roller coaster up and down for years. I mean, just like everybody else to me, one of the biggest things that, that helped me is pre-planning, pre-planning my business, understanding, you know, pre-planning my cash flow so I can project ahead when I'm going to have problems instead of, um, I, I talk about being proactive on your cash flow instead of reactive, right? Proactive, it means, you know, in six months, I know I'm going to have a cash flow crunch. So now I have time to plan for it. Reactive is we're in a cash flow crunch. What do we do? Right. That, that takes a lot of the stress out of it. Planning your business uh, makes decisions easy because all of a sudden you, you have a drought plan already. When the drought hits, you already know what you're going to do, right? That takes the stress away. Um, so pre-planning was a big change for me because Years ago, it was always that reactive, right? And that builds up the stress. So figuring out how to run run the business so that we can be proactive helped reduce my stress. I'm not saying that I'm out of stress by any means because that stress still comes. When it when it hits me now, I have little tricks that I do, like positive uh, thinking about positive moments in my life, positive things in my life, trying to to keep that positive side going, even though maybe something negative is happening at, at the time. And and same with if if that overwhelms me too much, then I have people I go to, right? I have a, a life skills coach that I go to when I need to. His name is Dan Oler. If I'm getting too stressed out, I phone up him and I make an appointment and we you know, maybe it's just me having to vent to him. Maybe it's him and I having a discussion about something and maybe it's, you know, trying to figure something out. But yeah, I have people I can go to as well to, to help me figure it out. I'm an introvert. I internalize things. I'll sit there and work through, through things in my head for a long time first. But if I can't figure it out, then I, I've, I've got a network of people that I can call on and, and uh, to get help. So yeah, that's pretty well the same answer. I think Don. Larry, you had a question for Don. Uh, Don, I know in Georgia, I get a lot more rainfall than y'all do, but I'm just curious how much rain you get so I can know in perspective when you talk about drought. Uh, I've heard Steve and them talk about their rainfall, but curious what your average rainfall is so I can get a, get a grasp where you're coming from, okay? Um, thanks for the question, Larry. I, I'm in located in northern Saskatchewan. We're generally a sure rainfall area. I would say between 15 and 20 inches our normal rainfall. Uh, last year we considered a drought. We had six inches of rain, so that's about a third or less than a third of normal. In my lifetime, and as far as I know, like this area where we're settled was settled late in the in the time frame. Most people never came to Metal Lake until the 1940s when there was a drought in southern Saskatchewan. So we're a relatively new area. We've had two droughts. One in 2002, we had just over four inches of rain. Last year we had six inches, so you know we're we're a pretty good area, no doubt about it. But we, we stock accordingly too, so you know when it gets dry here, there's consequences as well as there's anywhere else. Most people wait too late too late to destock. That's the problem. But I'm sure you do rotational grazing, so you've got grass in front of you for a while, isn't it? Exactly, Larry. When when you're doing rotational grazing, I would call it planned grazing. You know, you've got a good idea of what's coming ahead. And like Steve just mentioned, the value of planning is absolutely essential to make a plan and change your plan. Like one of the things we've done over the years is that when we make a plan, whatever it's about, whether it's grazing or finance or anything else, we believe it's a perfect plan the day we made it. And then down the road in six weeks or six months when conditions change, we have to replan. We don't go back and say, oh, that first plan was no good. I'm no good at planning. 
because you're beating yourself up and you're starting to deteriorate your own skills and your own ability. What we do is we say, yeah, the plan we did six months ago was perfect. Conditions are changed. I'm going to do another perfect plan. How can I go wrong? Because he used all the knowledge available to me, all the skills, all the people I know to draw it all together and make a plan. And then you move ahead from there. And we're talking about drought. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes a lot of sense in drought is if you run a long yearling operation, a cow-calf to a long yearling, yearlings are pretty expendable anytime. And that takes about roughly 25 or 30% of your grass. So all of a sudden, I've got 25 or 30% more grass for my cow herd. If I'm fully stocked with cows, they're not nearly as easy to move as yearlings are. So, you know, that, that's just one little thing you might think about. Thank you. I got two things to add to that, Larry. One with the drought, a drought is relative to your area, right? If you're in a 30 inch rainfall zone and you get 15 inches, that's 50% reduction. That's a drought. Your species of forage are used to that. Whereas if you're in a six inch rainfall area and you get three inches, well, that's the same percentage, right? It's a 50% lack of rainfall. That could be considered a drought. But I mean, it, it's relative to your area. And the big thing about drought for me is it's not your actual rainfall you get, it's your effective rainfall. And that's something that yeah. there's so many people that argue with me online about that, that, oh, I could do great if I just got more rain. Well, no, you need to hold on to the rain you're getting. And that's, you know, that's a en endless fight that I have online is that Steve, people just say you, you get more rain. Can you explain that a little bit better? What effective rainfall is? Yeah, so actual rainfall is what you get in your rain gauge, right? Let's say you get 15 inches in a season. Your effective rainfall is the amount your plants actually get to use. So how we could lose that rain, right? Once we get it, if nature gives us 15 inches, we might lose some to runoff, right? It didn't get in the ground, it ran off and we didn't get it. Uh, we could lose it to evaporation, right? Once it's in the ground, we, we, we're letting too much of it evaporate off uh, or we could lose it to infiltration. Right? Maybe we, we've got a, a real sandy soil and it just disappears too quick. We don't have enough water holding capacity and it, it disappears. My example from this summer, actually, I, I posted it on my Facebook page here a little while ago. I had two pieces of pasture, um, one that I've had, I've been managing for 18 to 22 years, right? There's different pieces in it. So it's a long-term pasture. And the other one I have is a short-term pasture. Most of it I've only had for about three years, most of the open land. There was some bush that I had longer. But anyway, I did some calculations, some numbers. I can share those with you if you need to. In the drought where we normally get 15 inches of rainfall in a, in a, in a growing season in my environment, this year we got less than four. So I think that was like 20-some percent or 23% or something. The pasture that I've had for 18 to 22 years, we still got 94% of our grazing days out of it. So we weren't really in a drought, right? That piece of land had a good effective rainfall. Um, the other piece of land we've only had for three years, I think we were at 62% uh, of our average of the previous two years. So that land was in a drought and they're, they're 10 miles apart. It's basically the same rainfall, um, but one did a lot better. So being in a drought is manageable. We just It just takes some time to get that to that point. So my, my two cents. Uh, residue left is is the key. Whatever residue you can leave and cover on the soil. Yeah, but the, it's not the residue this year. 
Yes. It's the residue for the last 10 years. And we've built up the water holding capacity, right? It's not a quick fix. This year, or like this past summer, I actually left a very little residue. We regrazed harder. We took things down more. We lengthened our, our rest period in order to, to deal with the drought. And I actually took more, but it's like a bank account. I'm sure Don has talked about this many, many times. It's like a bank account. You keep putting deposits in on the good years, then on that bad year, you can take a little bit more off and it doesn't hurt you because you've got that residue still built up. That soil armor is still there. So organic matter from the past, basically. And bell graze, and I'm a lot smaller scale, but when you taught me to bell graze three years ago, awesome results for me. I'm going to mute out. I'm sorry. you're good larry phil had a question hi there so uh, my question was uh has anyone else utilized uh barley fodder uh we started doing this ourselves where we actually sprout uh barley seed to uh nine days and it grows to about nine inches in a giant biscuit and for us we found that at the the end of the season in about july august it really helped us out because uh once you start uh, dropping this fodder, uh, they, they get so much nutrition from it that they actually will graze on anything. Uh, like they'll eat thistles, anything because they're, they really get their good nutrition from it. And I just, I, I guess it's not really a question it's more is like, does anyone else do this and do they have any results that, uh, about it or. I, I can jump in just very quickly, Phil. Uh, personally, I don't have any experience. I did know a couple in the Arctic area that were doing just exactly like what you're talking about. And they were very pleased with the results. And that's really all I could say about that. But it did work for that couple quite well. And it sounds like it's working for you. Well, we do uh, cattle and pigs on it and they they love it. And I just, it's kind of a thing that it works so well for us that it's it's kind of like we're curious who else is doing it because it, it's pretty interesting stuff. And again, it's just neat. You get nine inch barley in nine days. Like it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, I haven't done anything with that either, Phil. My my question is to maybe run the numbers and make sure equipment and labor is included, right? What is your economic benefit of that in the long run? If you're getting the gains that pays for that, wonderful, great. But if you're putting too much labor and equipment into it, like I, I have heard people talk about doing that and then they quit because they just couldn't keep up to the amount of labor that they were doing. I mean, as your herds get bigger, I can see you doing this with chickens, right? A smaller type of an animal. But if you had to do this with 600 head of cattle, is it doable or is it no longer uh, doable? I, that's my question. At that point, you would need automation for sure. Like for what you're doing, I know I, it would be pretty difficult to do. But the nice thing is that it is kind of nice because you don't necessarily have to feed them on it. You can utilize it. And that's what it's kind of nice that even necessarily you can't 100% eat it on them they eat less of everything else. It's kind of the nice thing of it. Um, it's a supplement, right? Exactly, yes. It's the supplement, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not a standalone feed at all. I've never recommended for that. <laughs> if that kicks up your gains, you know, maybe that's a great idea to be able to get your gains up higher, right? If that's an, especially if you're a grass-fed guy, right? You can't give grain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'm not, I'm curious about it, but I've never done it. If anybody in the group has ever done that, by all means, uh, you can private message or or do it in public in, in the chat there and, and let Phil know what your experiences are too. That'd be Larry great. waved his hand. I did it. I'll private message you, Phil. did it for several years and had great results. And five gallons of water would do quite a bit of stuff. Just doing it three times a day. But I'll message you, okay? Sounds good. 
So another question for, for both Don and Steve here, what would be some of the tools that you would use to help plan for a drought ahead of time? Well, um, that's a great question, Amber. Thank you to whoever asked it. Steve mentioned about you're not planning for the drought when it's happening. That's not when you're trying to build your soil. You're trying to build your soil 10, 20 years in front of that. So, you know, better management pays. And Steve made a very good presentation on the effect of water cycle or the effect of rainfall. It isn't difficult by better management to double your effective rainfall. So in effect, you've doubled your total rainfall because what you lose doesn't do you any good anyway. Almost everywhere in Western Canada, even where we live, and we live in one of the wettest areas there is, rainfall is our limiting factor. So just stop and think about it. If you could double your rainfall, how much more effective would your ranch be? How much more drought-proof would you be? It'd be unbelievable. In our particular situation, we got about 4,000 acres that we're running here. We run about 700 cows plus the yearlings. We've crippled our ability to grow grass on a set land base. Now, you're all in business. You all understand business. Can you imagine what that does for your bottom line? That's like us going out and buying two more 4,000-acre ranches. What would the cost be? What would the fencing? What would the labor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? We've got that for free by improving our land. And the number one solution to drought and the number one solution to profit is to improve your land. When you do that, everything gets better. Yeah, for sure. I've told this story a couple of times. I don't know if I've, I've said it on here, but back in 202, right? Probably one of the worst droughts we've, we've seen. Uh, Dennis Wabasser was one of my biggest mentors back there. And I, I remember going back, I was living up by Edmonton at the time, but I went back to, to Lloydminster. That's where my family farm is. And I went back and I talked to Dennis and one of the best grazers I've ever met and everything was brown, right? My, I remember my dad told me that back then that they went 14 months straight with zero precipitation, right? That's a pretty severe drought. And it uh, doesn't matter where you are, that's, that's a drought. And I, I remember going to Dennis and everything's brown. And I said, well, what do you do now? And his first response to me was, now we plan for the next drought, right? And now that, that was a powerful statement to me. And I've done that ever since, right? Since that time, I'm, every year I'm planning for a drought. And, and especially on the good years. The good years is the best time to be planning for a drought because you can leave extra residue. You can skip paddocks, right? If I've got 25 paddocks in my rotation on the good year, I could skip two of them and I'm barely going to notice it, but I'm going to skip the two worst ones and let that residue go back and build that soil and, and let this, you know, let it go to seed maybe. And then on that drought year, I can graze everything harder because I've been so much, you know, I've, I've been nice to it for the last seven or eight or nine or 10 years. Um, you can get away with hitting it a little harder on the drought year. Um, but yeah, you cannot plan for a drought in a drought. You have to be planning way ahead. And that was the best piece of advice I've ever, I've ever gotten on grazing. So uh, very, very appreciative to, uh, to him for that. Another question here. So disposable herds um, are obviously ideal for a drought. It makes things a lot easier. What other things like a disposable herd would you use or, or when do you decide to sell off? That, that's a, a really good question, but a very difficult one. And I, I think it depends where you live and on your operation. Like every operation is unique. 
And that's one of the strengths of holistic management. It doesn't say, here's how you do it. It says, here's the principle, apply it to your unique business in your unique area. So to start with, I want to share a little story. Uh, Bud Williams, some of you will know him. He's uh, one of the first guys to introduce and promote low livestock stress handling. And he also had a marketing course about buying and selling cattle. And Bud used to say, there's three things in the cattle business. There's grass, money, and cattle. You never have too much money. You never have too much grass. You can have too many cattle. So we need to range our stocking rate to fit the reality of what's happening. So in effect, we talked about the earnings. That's one way to do it. If you're custom grazing, that's pretty easy. You can send those cattle home anytime. If you've got a cow-calf operation and you're using all your land and all your grass, you have to have some kind of parameters to say, okay, if it doesn't rain by this date or it doesn't rain this much, I'm going to start destocking. What am I going to do? I'm going to look for custom grazing somewhere else. You need to make a plan. And Steve stressed that about the, the power of planning. It's unbelievable how powerful it is, but you need to use it. And you need to be using it now in the wintertime, not when you're in May or June and there's no grass. That's too late. You need to go ahead of time. So that's a couple of ideas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the disposable herd. I, I purposely plan in my grazing. I mean, and, and I don't even own the cows for the winter, but I'm trying to keep my customers happy. So um, same idea. I, I'm trying to make sure I've got a heifer herd around to do cleanups after the yearlings go out, right? As a custom guy, a lot of my, if I'm bringing in yearlings, a lot of my customers want those animals back to their feedlot by September because they're finished putting up their silage and they want to get feeding their animals. So they end up taking those animals out early, usually on me. And I, lots of times I end up with excess grass that I, I need to sell. So by planning to have a, a cow calf producers heifer herd, usually it's a smaller group that's easier to move around. If I got extra grass somewhere, I can easily move them around. So it's the same idea, but I'm on the other end of it. If you're the cattle owner, you've got that disposable herd. Uh, it could be you take your first cutting of hay, right? They, the, the idea of the disposable herd is to knock down that early spring flush and then possibly get rid of those animals earlier. You could do that with a hay field. Take the first cutting, save the second cutting for grazing. Um, a silage field cut it out, make sure you've got that extra regrowth for, you know, cut it early and, and you've got the extra regrowth to graze your cows on later in the year. So there's, there's other tools in, in, in your tool bag that you can utilize to be able to get that late season grazing to get your, your cow herd later. But yeah, like Don said, if you're maxed out with cows on a drought year, then now you're selling in a, in a drought situation, you're going to lose capital by selling cows at a low price. Right. So. Awesome, guys. Uh, next up, we have the Grass Whisperer. Hi, guys. Hi, Troy. Hey, thanks, uh, Don. You're the man. Super thrilled to be on here. Um, I had a question about the uh, pre-plan monitoring. So, so there's, uh, let's see. So when you're pre-planning, let's say you're already grazing, how much do you monitor grass growth? And I know your land's going to be different than mine and rainfall. And then how much do you use that grass growth to plan 30 days ahead if that's what you use? And then when you get into like drought, when it's actually happening, are you continuing to monitor that? Or are you just kind of looking at it and say, yeah, it's not growing? What, what decisions or tools or look-sees or whatever do, do you 
try to keep abreast of what that grass growth is doing or weed growth or whatever's grown during the drought? That's good. Thank you for the question. Um, like in a, in a normal year, say there's no drought. What we do is we're, we use an 85-day recovery, and we pick a date in the spring. We say, okay, growth starts on this day. And how we pick that day is when the leaves come out on the poplar trees. And poplar trees are pretty widespread in Western Canada. And, you know, all of a sudden, one day there's no leaves. The next day there's leaves. We say, okay, that's the day growth started. So now we start counting our recovery from that day forward. What we've grazed before the leaves come out, we say we haven't grazed it in this growing season. We can use it at the end of the season. Then we start moving and we monitor how the regrowth is in the first pasture we're grazing. After the leaves come out and we say it's going to recover, yeah, about average, let's just keep going. It's going to work out. Our no growth is really slow. It's dry. It's cold. Something's wrong. We need to slow down. We need to lengthen our recovery. Then we would graze more severely. If we're in an exceptionally good year, we might say, gee, we don't need 85 days. Let's speed up and move quicker. But you have to monitor the first pasture you start grazing in the spring to get the proper recovery. And everybody on this call, I'm sure I don't know most of you, but everybody on the call will have some magic level of grass. They think it should be this high or whatever. And that comes from your history, your training, your parents, your community. If you follow your gut feeling, you'll always be wrong. Because suppose you're supposed to have a three-day graze in a pasture and you go out there on day two and you say, oh, the grass is already down to my magic level. I better move. So you're going to start to shorten your recovery when you should actually be increasing it because growth is poor. And take the reverse of that. If you go out there on day three and you say, I'm supposed to say three days, oh, it's not short enough. I better stay longer. Now you'll start increasing your recovery when the growth conditions are perfect. So the only way to make that right is to have a plan and to monitor the regrowth, base your conditions on that. When you get into a drought situation, like first thing I would suggest, you combine your herds. So you try to reduce your number of herds. One herd is ideal. How close can I get to that? Next thing you do is you slow down. You start to graze more severely. So you have longer recovery, more chance for rain to come, more time for the plants to grow. Third, you might consider supplemental feeding. And I'm not promoting that. I'm saying it's something to look at as an individual. And number four is destock. And the sooner you destock, the fewer you'll have to destock. So those are kind of the four principles that I would throw out to get you through the drought. Back to you. So I had a question just on the uh, semantics. So are you measuring kilometers of growth per day? Or, or are you looking at uh, inches per day? Or you say, well, it's a proper level. What, what does Don Campbell use for his guide? Do you go out for three days and just measure it and see what it is? or? You're, you're so experienced, you just look at it and say, oh, it's slow, or oh, it's fast. I mean, we're, I, I'm trying to actually measure it and, and get a sense. And, and a lot of folks that are more experienced than me are saying, oh, we just look at it and we know. And I'm not buying it. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll go for the experience part because, like, we don't actually measure, <clears throat> but we look at it and we say, you know, does it look like it's growing good? Is it healthy? Is the color good? Does it look like there'll be grass there in 60 days or 70 days? And try to imagine that. And it's worked very well for us. You know, we're better at it than we used to be. 
And if you're doing a planned grazing, you always got, you know, there's so many pastures ahead. Each one that we can go out and look ahead and say, well, I got 10 pastures left. And yeah, each one's going to last two days or five days or whatever. I can figure that out. I know how much grass I've got. I know when I'm going to run out and I know what's behind me. So if you're measuring it, I think that's great. Go for it. Uh, We don't personally do that. Troy, the difficulty I have with measuring it is every different type of pasture is different. Okay, are you measuring height? Are you measuring thickness? Like, that's where it comes down to that visual experience of of what it's doing. I I think when Jim Garrish was up, he talked about leaf stages, right? You want to be at a at a certain leaf stage, or but uh, I mean, to me, a, a clover fescue pasture is never going to get tall, right? It gets thick, whereas a brome alfalfa pasture can get tall but not as thick. Like it, it just depends on, on the type of pasture you're grazing. So I guess I'm, I'm uh, as a service provider also, besides being a farmer, I, I only keep touching this issues because some kind of measuring inches or whatever for a young person that, that doesn't have the g- general, you know, they can measure something. So I was just kind of wondering what the, what the gurus are saying, you know, what, you know, when you start, what what are you using? Grazing Thanks. chart. A grazing chart is key to start. I mean, you still have to figure out kind of an idea of stocking rate and stuff. And that might be where it's talking to your neighbors first, you know, maybe getting their idea on what's been on the land before. Talk to them about that. But then a grazing chart, because after that first year, you kind of, well, you can look back, be like, okay, well, this is how much rainfall we got. This might be. And then from year to year, you have a way to kind of measure what each of your paddocks are doing. And then you can see how performance is going. I, I think not that's, helping me. I'm trying to get people to measure. <laughs> Jeez. I, I think Amber's right, though, in the, the fact that you got to get that first year, that little bit of experience. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch. It doesn't have to be 20 years of experience. But to actually get that first year done, like the first one's the hardest. You have no idea, yeah. right? I yeah. get a new piece of land. I have no idea the production that land's going to do. I've never seen it. So I guess I have a rule of thumb. That, okay, I'm going to, you know, for every open acre of land I have in my area, I'm going to put one yearling. Okay, so let's say it's 160 acres. There's 100 acres that is open. So I could put maybe 100 100 yearlings on there. Now, that's in my environment, in my rainfall. Is it, has it been overgrazed? Is it really severely, you know, I I know it's in in rough shape. We're going to bump that down. Let's go to 75. Is it, boy, I, I actually saw that one last fall. That's in great shape. Maybe I can bump it up a little bit, right? So it's a rule of thumb I have from experience. But if you don't have the experience, definitely record it the first year, right? You're going to guess, record it the first year on a grazing chart. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, this part of the field, right? This open field with clover and fescue did 100 animal days per acre. Well, this part over here that was, you know, I don't know what it was. It wasn't as good. It only did 40 animal days per acre. Okay. Now I've got that visual in my head, the, the, the differences. Now another piece of land comes up. Oh, you know what? That's similar to that piece. You know, that one paddock of 10 acres, that, that whole quarter is similar to that. Now I have some, an educated guess on how many animals I could put there because I have some experience, even if it's only one year. But you kept the numbers, you you kept track of it, you actually calculated the yield. 
And that I think is an important part of that. And then you get that experience and it doesn't have to be 20 years worth. With calculating the yield, you can even then go a step further and take that to, you know, um, pounds per acre if you wanted you could go and okay well how many bales of hay do my cattle eat right and and then take that to how many days and you can calculate it out and work out pounds per acre hey amber could i put in uh, my two cents yeah hi jan (laughs) (laughs) i'm tom (laughs) okay something that um that i have done and the first time I did it was by accident. I had a paddock that was, uh, I estimated was uh, five days. And what happened was the cattle had to walk back to water. So I strip grazed uh, that paddock. What I found was, so the, the, the first break, all the cattle were there. Second day in the second break, all the cattle stayed in that second break. They'd walk back for water and then they'd go to the second break. Same thing happened on the third day. Uh, the cattle went back for water and they all came back to the third break. On the fourth day, there were cattle that were start to stay in the first break. Then on the fifth day, none of the cattle went to the, to the fifth break. When they went to water, they stayed in that, that first break. And what, what that showed me was that there was grass was growing fast. And in three days, there was enough regrowth for them to get uh, to take another bite. I did it again this year. Uh, we had lots of heat and uh, and drought in August, um, beginning first week of August. I did the same thing, and what I found was that at that time it was six days of of um, before there was enough growth for them to be staying in that in that first break. And I found I found it to be a very effective a very effective tool. The the animals told me. Uh, how fast the grass was growing. Troy, did we answer your question? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> I, I guess I'm a little more uh, excitable on measuring uh, and get a, a sense of how it's growing. So I have my pasture stick or a yard stick. And uh, again, over here in orchard grass country, it might be easier to do measuring um, a little bit, or I concentrate on uh, the worst field in the best field just to see comparatively and again it's 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 not a necessarily anybody's recipe but each one of us has to i feel when you go into start getting into dry weather and these weather events it's always good to know how fast your regrowth is is so you can make decisions 60 days from now and so however that recipe is um is important to do it uh, whatever the tools are. So I guess that was my uh, comment. So go ahead. Thank you. Enjoy your evening. <laughs> Thanks. Um, next up, we have Al. Are you ready to go, Al? Maybe I'll read off Al's question. Um, so Al said, what are you planning for this spring now that the pastures were stressed and possibly limited to moisture? Oh, he said he has no mic. That would be why. <laughs> hey, great, great question. Uh, again, like when we're in a meeting like this, it's so important that everybody thinks about their own place because that's where things are happening. That's where the rain's going to happen or not happen. In our particular situation here, like uh, we got through last year, you know, not bad considering everything. And while I mentioned we got about a third of our normal rainfall, we also had a lot of frost in May, which was just as detrimental as the rainfall. We also had very excessive heat 
in June and July. And then we had grasshoppers. So we didn't actually have a low rainfall. We had four different factors that all combined to make growth very difficult. Right now we're sitting with about four feet of snow on the ground. So it appears to me that our drought is probably over in our little local area. Like 50, 60 miles away from here, they don't have that much snow. So we're thinking that's a blessing. We're probably going to start the spring in good condition. And as I mentioned earlier, we're in a good rainfall area, more or less, you know, sure rainfall area, whatever that means. So we're pretty optimistic. Uh, because of the drought last summer, we had difficult buying feed. So we sent our calves to a feedlot. Our first plan is if it doesn't look good in the spring, they're not coming home. Our cow herd, we think unless it gets really, really difficult, we'll be able to manage them. If it's good, we'll bring the yearlings home and carry on from there. So that's kind of our plan at this time, and we'll adjust it as we go. And I can't emphasize enough that every time you make a plan, believe in yourself. It's the perfect plan with the conditions as you know them today. When you get down the road and you make a replan, it's another perfect plan. So you're always building your team because that's what's going to make you successful is your people, not the rainfall or the lack of rainfall. People are what make things happen. Yeah. There's lots of different reasons why I make decisions on the farm. Okay. Sometimes I'm grazing for the land. Sometimes I'm grazing for the cattle and sometimes I'm grazing for the people, right? I might change my plan because of a, a, a situation or a, you know, in a drought situation, that's going to change what my original plan was. For, for example, you know, for two, the two previous years, 2019, 2020, we had really wet years, like super wet. Like I, I took over a new pasture with some grain land and it was flooded. We had, we were grazing through 11 inches of water, right? So all my other pastures did great, but that one, you know, it was, it was really hard done by. So we actually ended up abusing it because I had nowhere else to go. Then all of a sudden we switch, we have two really good years and I'm like, oh, everything's in great shape. You know, we're, we're, we're moving forward. And I decide to do a couple of big year, uh, big herds of steers, right? We're going to get some gains. We're going to graze hard. We're going to shorten up our, our rest period. And we're going to get some gains on these. We're going to make some cash flow. Of course, that's the year when we have a drought. And like Don said, we had that extreme heat in the middle of it. Um, normally I should destock. I should uh, slow, slow down, slow down my rotation. But at that point, I also got a customer who, you know, in a season might pay me, I'm going to top my head here, like $60,000, right? That's a big, pretty big customer who's not going to like it if I send his animals home early. So I have some, some land that's in really good shape that I've taken care of really well for the last quite a few years. I actually abused it. We grazed it really hard. We didn't slow down as much as I wanted to but I wanted to make sure that that customer was happy. So now I'm grazing for the people. So technically I know in the back of my head that I could have done better for the land by definitely destocking. Uh, but I grazed longer and kept him happy. We still got, I think 1.7 pounds a gain on his animals. And I've got a customer that's happy this year. Now I know that we had a hard year. So my plan for this year, Okay, it's going to be different. It's not going to be yearlings. We're not going to get aggressive. We're going to back off. We're going to do a recovery year. I might, uh, ideally, if I can get uh, bred heifers there, I'll graze them nice and slow. Uh, we'll let a nice long recovery period. Uh, we'll try and lower the stocking rate. We'll have fewer animals and we'll graze longer. 
We'll let some paddocks go to seed, right? So it's a, it's a recovery year. It's a different year. We're going to change our management because we've got different conditions. And I think that's one of the important parts is one of the tools in our toolbox is change, right? Uh, and as a custom grazer, I have the ability to change even more. I can bring in a different class of livestock and graze them totally different because I want to uh, heal that land again this year. Um, so I don't know if, if that answered the question or not. I don't Kent, the next question is Kent Sully. However, he said he has a 3D printer going in the background. I really want to know what you're printing. I'm really curious about these things, but that's that's a completely like other topic, I'm sure. Uh, so are you rolling your eyes at me, Steve? Did I no, just see I, that? I'm thinking a 3D <laughs> printer or a dot matrix printer. That'd be both the same, right? <laughs> I think Steve really wants to use some of these old tools. <laughs> so Kent says, how long should a person wait before grazing animals on a newly seeded grazing or hay field? Give it a whole year or, uh, or let them have in the fall or short, during, short duration rotations throughout the season? Yeah, that's a great question. My personal experience, and I don't have a lot of experience, we haven't seeded a lot of grass. Most of our land has always been in grass. It's a native, I would call it native range. But what I've been able to learn in talking to other people and working with people across Western Canada is that if you graze lightly and you don't stay too long, grazing a new crop like that will actually make it stool out and you'll have a better stand than if you don't graze it. But the key word is you don't graze it very heavily you don't use too high a stock density and you don't stay very long so the animals can be a tool to make the grass germinate and stool better and that's not conventional wisdom north and north they say stay off for a year hate for two years and then graze it that's not necessary at all yeah i agree i mean adding animal impact to the to the land is always a good thing because uh, not only the physical impact of their hooves on the land, but also the biological impact, right? Bringing in the, the manure and the urine and the biology that comes with that. It's, it's the biology and the food for biology. So there's, you know, it's always a bonus if you can get animals on that land. Now, the risk factor, if you're taking over some grain land, which I've done quite a bit of, um, working with a grain farmer and I've taken over grain land, the risk factor is if you get a really wet period, and then they can punch it out and then they can do a lot of damage to the land and compaction and, and damage. So you have to have some place to take the animals if it's wet, right? The three years ago, we took over some grain land. That was all we had. It was, you know, that we took over a hundred acres of just grain land. And then we were going to be able to do some swath grazing and residue grazing on the rest of his land, right? There was I think there was 5,000 acres total, but we got 100 acres in the middle. He wanted cows on his grain land. But for the summer, that's all we had. And it just so happens the year we took it over and seeded it down was one of the wettest years we ever had. And that's the year where we're grazing through 11 inches of water. Like I, I grazed all the highland first, trying to stay out of, the, out of the mud, but then I had nowhere to go, right? So that was a learning experience for me. You need a place to go if it's wet. Uh, another piece of land a couple of years ago, we took over, uh, we added 60 acres of grain land to 1100 acres of pasture, right? So it was just a piece that was right beside it. Well, that one was easy because I could easily stay on the pasture. And when I went to go onto the grain land, I picked a dry time, 
right? If it started to rain, well, I could pull them off. I had 1,100 acres that I could have leeway on that. So that's a planning tool. If you're going to take over an entire area of grain land that is, you know, that's a risky part. But if you take it over a little piece at a time, you have less risk. You have a little bit more leeway on if it's really wet, you don't go on that land. And then when it dries up a bit, then you can go out and graze that down. But so a lot of risk factor involved in, in taking over that grain land. So be aware of that. If I was to do it again and I had just a piece of grain land to take over and that's the only land I had, I would probably plan to swath graze it the first year. That way, I, I'm not, <laughs> there's less risk of me punching it out and beating it up. Then on the second year, we've got it established a little bit, maybe then take it over for the summer um, and be able to uh, do a rotation on it, get some root systems in there to, to get some stability. Because the, on that land that got punched out so bad the first year, we're grazing through 11 inches of water. The second year, we also had a wet year. Because of the first year, we got some root systems in there. We didn't have 11 inches of water sitting there. It, it started to already infiltrate down and was draining away. Right? It only took one year of those root systems in there of the perennials to dig down. And all of a sudden we were already getting better infiltration and better, better management. So we weren't grazing. It was still muddy, but we weren't grazing through as much water. So um, it, it takes some time to heal that land. Fantastic. Uh, next up, we have Brock. Brock, are you ready to go? Hello. Uh, I guess I posted earlier asking how to measure new grass, and I talked about uh, using animal units per day. I guess that's a pretty good way. I think Steve answered a lot of that in his follow-up talking about that. But uh, for me, I've just bought a new place, and I'm pretty new in starting this, and I only have uh, people's recommendations in the area of what things normally have for capacity. So yeah, kind of how would I measure or plan out, or should I plan a stock light for the first year? Or is that not good if I'm not using or eating all the grass? So kind of how to measure from ground zero would be. Thank you, Brock. Uh, good question. I think you mentioned there about getting information or knowledge from your neighbors. And they say you can put, you know, 20 cows at a quarter, 50 cows at a quarter or whatever. That might be a good place to start. And that should give you kind of a basic stocking rate to think that should work in this area. Now, if you're getting information from a guy that's doing a really intensive job, then he's probably going to give you too many animals per acre. But most people in most areas, you know, they're not doing that intensive a grazing. So the information they give you will probably be okay. And then what I would suggest is you would take that stocking rate that says 30 cows to the quarter or whatever, but do a planned grazing. So you're moving the animals, you're stopping the overgrazing, and you're going to grow more grass than the guy that gave you the information. So you got 30 cows, but you're going to grow grass for 30 or 40 or 50 cows. And when you do that, you won't get in any trouble at all. And then once you've got that first year under your belt, you'll learn and you'll just keep growing. So don't be intimidated. Like you can set your stocking rate and then just do a better job than whoever gave you the stocking rate number. And it'll work out just fine. Steve, you're smiling. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. One of the one of the things I get all the time is is same thing. People ask me how many animals put out there or my landowners, uh, I'll take over a new piece of land and they'll tell me how many animals are supposed to be out there. It it might be let's say they say on a quarter of land you can put 30 animals. Okay, well, I'll put 30 animals out there. Maybe I'll go with the same number, but I get I might get more months. 
because I do a rotational grazing, right? It's a good place to start is what the local, local people tell you, but they might only graze for five months and I might get six months out of it with the same number of animals. So that's a, uh, a place to start. I would rather start low, right? I don't want to start with the, the guy that's saying you can put 60 animals out there when, when, you know, I should put 30 or 40 out there. So yeah, that, that's something measuring is different depending who you talk to. Some people measure in, in animal days per acre. Some do animal unit months. Some do pounds of beef per acre, stock days per acre. There's lots of different ways of measuring. As long as you're using the same measurement year to year, it's okay, right? You don't have to use the same thing I do. Uh, you know, it, it's just a measurement tool, but to be able to get your yield and to compare your numbers to your numbers year after year. Yeah. Just, you use the same, the same measurement tool all the time. Yeah. I just want to make another comment to Brock is that I think you mentioned something about, you know, maybe leaving too much grass and like when you're doing grazing, you should also be doing a financial plan and your financial plan should say, if I run this many cattle and I sell my cows or I get custom grazing, whatever my income should work, I'm going to make some money. So then if you have extra grass, it's not wasted. It's an opportunity to invest that grass in building your soil so that you'll grow even more grass next year. That's how you improve your water cycle. So you can never have too much grass. And in nature, there is no waste. Like we have a convention in Western Canada here that, you know, if it isn't cut or harvested or grazed by the 1st of November, it's all wasted. That's crazy. If you can leave growth on your land, that's investing in what we call the biological bank account, makes your land healthier, improves your water cycle, improves your mineral cycle, all those things. So if you can graze this many animals and make enough money, the more grass you leave behind, the better. You can't possibly leave too much grass. All that's going to happen is you're going to get too rich. You'll be able to deal with that. That's a mentality thing, right, Don? We've got the mentality in agriculture that we have to be the most efficient right? We have to harvest everything we can. We don't want to waste anything. But if you look at nature, the, the best example I have in nature is a cow, right? Or any livestock. They're about 80% inefficient, right? 80% of what they, what they consume comes out the back end, right? That's, it's not for the benefit of the cow. It's for recycling nutrients. So if we're thinking about, okay, take the cow out of it, let's look at the grass. Should we take all of it? Or should we recycle a bunch of it, right? To make a, a system sustainable, nature recycles, right? So by leaving more grass, you're just going to be better next year. It's, a, it's a, a, always an arm wrestle between short-term cash flow, right? What I can take this year and what I can get to put food on the table, to put diapers on bums, whatever your situation is, versus long-term sustainability. The more I leave this year, the better I'm going to do next year. And that's, that's something that I've, I learned a long time ago, and I'm very grateful for the lesson that, that, that I learned. I, I used to take too much, right? I, I did all these good grade, you know, graze period, rest period, animal impact, stock density, did all those great, but I never left enough residue. And it showed up after years. That's the one key that I was missing for about 10 years of my grazing career is I wasn't leaving the residue. Because you know what? If I leave my cows out there for a couple more days on every paddock, that's probably another thousand bucks in my pocket. But if I was, you know, to extrapolate that over the next 10 years, I probably lost $3,000 every year because I took too much residue. Yeah, there's no such thing as wasted grass. The more you leave, the more you get the following years. 
Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Ellen. Ellen does not have a mic, so I'm going to read the question off. When you make a plan and set a date, do you hit the date and pull the trigger or hope and hold off a bit? Uh, I, I think he's applying to drought there. Like, say, I'm going to sell on a certain date. Um, I, I would suggest you make a date and you plan now in the wintertime, saying by this date in the middle of June or whenever you're going to pick, i got to get this much rain. But then when you get there, you can rethink it because conditions change. So, you know, flexibility and believing in yourself is key. You have to believe in your ability to plan. And I mentioned when we started out tonight, holistic management is about making better decisions. So trust yourself. See, yeah, right now it looks like I can run this many cattle. I'm gonna start out and I'm gonna see how it goes. And I've got enough knowledge and skill to adjust to whatever the current circumstances are. So I, I would make a date when you get there, be flexible. In 25 years, 24 years, something like that, I've been up here grazing. I've only had to destock once on one pasture. And that pasture, I was actually continuously grazing because it was the only option I had. So I've, I've never actually had to destock. And I think it comes down to the planning. I've taken schools in the past where they talk about adjusting your stock density to your carrying capacity. Okay, so what that means is on a good year, you have more animals. On a drought year, you want less animals, so you destock. And I've never really, I've never really bought into that concept. I usually understock kind of on purpose because on the good years, then I can leave residue. Right. I, I'm, I'm understocked. Oh, great. Oh, you know, shucks. I've got too much grass. That's that's a, that's a shame. And I, and I don't I usually don't stock aggressively. And then on a drought year comes along because I've left extra residue the other years. I can get away with it, graze a little harder, keep my animals longer. Right. Like this year, we've had what, 23 percent of our annual our normal annual rainfall. And I didn't have to destock a single animal. Because I've planned for that right this you know increasing your animals on a good year and decreasing your animals on a poor year i don't buy into that uh, i've set a, a moderate uh stocking rate and then on the bad years you know i can i just ship out a little bit early like we shipped out early september this year normally we're shipping out in in october sometime but that keeps my customers happy and it, it's kind of a balance i think i don't know yeah i haven't had to destock because i'm i'm not overly aggressive on my uh, stock density. Awesome. Uh, next up, we have Ken Anderson. He's one of the board members of Grow. I don't know if you wanted to unmute your mic, Ken. Hey, I think I did it. You did. There we go. Okay. All right. So um, in the springtime, I find many times, well, even up until uh, midsummer, I'm always looking what's ahead of ahead of me and for pasture, so it doesn't get uh, too mature. I'm always trying to keep up with it, and then the last half of the season, well, then I'm worried about how much I got left. Anybody else want to comment on that? I think you said you're worried about how much grass is ahead. I'm not sure. Maybe I didn't quite get the question, but I don't think. That's a concern. You start out, what you want to manage for, in my opinion, is recovery. And you say, I'm going to, I would suggest, you know, in an audience like this, there's lots of people from lots of places. You're going to need somewhere between 60 and 90 day recovery. 
So you start managing for that, and then you adjust that according to the growing conditions. The grass ahead of you doesn't matter. I want to share a little story. We had it one year here, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe it was, or whatever. And we had some yearlings didn't gain very good, and we were kind of disappointed. So we went out and we took some clipping, and it was 85-day grass. It was mixed, you know, few legumes, broom, et cetera, et cetera. We got lots of species in our pastures, maybe 20 different species out there. Anyway, we clipped and we sent it to the university and we contacted the university guys and their comment was, boy, that's sure good for second cut alfalfa. Because the health of the land and the diversity of the grass means there's all kinds of nutrition there. I wouldn't worry about your grass getting too old. That's the least of your worries. If it gets a little bit old, they can graze the good stuff and trample down the rest, put the surplus in the biological bank account. See, I don't think that's an issue at all. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I don't. I don't know if I have much to add to that. Don did a good good job answering that. Graham Gilchrist has a question. Don, thank you very much for your your chat tonight. How are you applying the same holistic principles to your current liability pressures or your earnings before taxes uh, pressures? Doing the planning, doing the targets, doing the benchmarking, and then triggering whether or not you've you've got pressures that your cattle and your grass can't compensate for? Well, that, that's a great question, Graham. And like I think we all know the cattle business has been tight the last you know, number of years. We do a very detailed financial plan. And that's part of holistic management is to do a good financial plan. One of the things we focus on is trying to be profitable instead of productive. And in agriculture in general, you know, produce. Wean a 600 or an 800 pound calf, grow 60 bushels the acre, grow 100 bushels the acre. The highest production will not be associated with the highest profit. So we try to figure out what's our area suited for? What can we do best? What can we do better than other people? And we think a cow-calf operation with the long yearlings tied in with it suits us. So we do a financial plan and we project out a full year before the year ever starts. We say we need this much to live on, this much to make our commitments, and it's working. We're doing just fine. It takes a lot of planning, and you've got to be uh, flexible. The biggest way to make a positive change in your life is to change how you see things or how you think. And most of us in agriculture are conditioned to get a better bull, a better hay buying, a better whatever. And those things are not bad, but the change that they make is minuscule. But if you change your paradigm, you say, I'm going to start working towards a profit instead of production. I'm going to start working to improving my land instead of grading my land over time. All of a sudden, it's like a whole new ball game. So I would suggest if you want to make small changes in your life, you change how you do things. If you want to make big changes, you change how you see things. And I just want to maybe accentuate that with a little story like, on our ranch, we'd owned all the cattle up until the mid-1980s, which is about 40 years on the ranch between my dad and myself. At that time, I sold my cow herd, and I was going to run yearlings. Took a million-dollar note to the bank to own the yearlings. I did that for a couple of years. I was born over a million bucks, and I realized my risk is too high. And my paradigm was that I had to own the animals to run the ranch. And I switched my paradigm, and I said, no, I need to harvest the grass. So in one swoop, one change, we sold out, we don't, excuse me, we didn't sell the, we sold the units because we sold them every year, but we bought 200 cows that we could buy with no debt. We took the balance of our land and we custom grazed it. 
And our financial plan said that'll work just fine. And then we started building our cow herd, which we thought was the best thing to do over time. Now we're at 700 cows. But changing your paradigms, every one of us on this call has a paradigm that's blocking us from moving ahead. When I thought I had to own all the cattle, cost me a million dollar loan at the bank. I was paying the bank $50,000 in interest. The next year I went to the banker and I said, you know, it's been great dealing with it. I don't need any money this year. He almost fell out of his chair because we all know usually it's the other way around. The banker's telling us, oh, you can't have quite as much as you did last year. In 88, I paid the bank $50,000 in interest. In 89, I paid nothing to the bank and they paid me $10,000 in money I had deposited in the bank. That's a $60,000 change. You never make that kind of a change by changing how you do things. You make that kind of a change by how you think differently. That's the key to success. Challenge and change your paradigms. Yeah, before I put in my two cents, Don, I want you to repeat your quote there about how you change the way you see things. Everybody should write this down. This is one of my favorite quotes from Don. So say it again, Don. If, if you want to make small change, you change how you do things. You get a better whatever, tractor, bull, cultivator, hay barn. If you want to make big change, you change how you see things. And that's where the power is. It's in your mind. Now, you know, there's a lot of different age groups on this call. You've been doing things 10, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe 50 years plus like I have been. When you're doing that, you're kind of, you know, you've done as good as you can do within your paradigm. But if you can change your paradigm and say, gee, I don't have to win all the cattle. I don't have to make my own hay. I can do this. I can do that differently. It's like being a teenager again. Wow. There's no limit to what we can accomplish. And that's the story of my life. Change my paradigms, move to a better level. And it works. Yeah, I think that's a huge lesson that we could all learn is change how you think. When I when I started to to look at that, and, and years ago I heard that quote from Don, and and that totally turned around my business because we don't always have to think the way we're we're trained to think. What I what when I went through college, I was trained how to think instead of taught how to think. Right? We need to learn how to question things and 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 ask questions about why do we do this and why do we do that, not just accept the fact that somebody tells you you're supposed to do this. So, um, great point by Don there. I love that. Back to the original question, uh, I think it was Graham, did you ask this original one about paying taxes? For me, if I'm going to pay taxes, that's a good thing. On a year where I'm paying taxes, I did, I did a, a good job. I'm proud of myself and I'm willing to give my business partner, who is the government, um, a piece of what I earned. So I'm not afraid to pay taxes. That's one thing that farmers are always, you know, oh, you're going to pay taxes. So you should go out and buy a brand new tractor. Yeah, the, the, you know, the brand new tractor is probably not a good investment. <laughs> and next year you won't be paying taxes because you won't make any money because you're making too many payments. So yeah, no, I'm not afraid of paying taxes. I think that's, uh, I can't remember your original question, Graham, but uh, I'm not afraid of paying taxes. Well, Steve, my original question really was, thank you for for spending a lot of time on holistic management on the grass and the, and the soil and ultimately using the animals to harvest but the the question really is around the same principles of planning on your cash flow requirements with you know paying your current liabilities and your profit challenges uh, your earnings before taxes and and because ultimately the assumption is I have is you want to pay yourself more than just with sunsets. 
Yeah, I'd like to pay myself more than I pay the government. That's true. The point you're making there, I, I like that. There's a difference, though, between economics and finances. And that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, I remember my exchange student from Columbia years ago. I, I talked to him in 2018. He was he came and worked to me for like 2005. So, you know, 2018, I talked to him. And he, he told me the, the number one thing that he remembers, the, the most important thing he learned from me uh, working on my ranch was that there's a difference between economics and finances. And uh, that was that was powerful for me because I most people want to learn about grazing and fencing and how to calve cows and all these wonderful things. But the fact that that's what he learned out of that the time he spent with me, that meant a lot to me. There's a big difference between those and we need to understand those. So I might just comment there a bit, Graham, on your question. And like holistic management has a very detailed process of how to do a financial plan. And I don't think there's time really tonight to get into it. But one of the things we do is, first of all, we plan for a profit. Okay, So we start before the year starts to say, I want to make how much on my my property or my business? Do I want to make 10000 5000 50000 Set that out, and then you plan to make that happen. And you do that by controlling your expenses. Because in agriculture, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of say over our end price of our product. But we have a lot of say over how much it costs to produce it. And we have a very detailed method of how to sort your expenses into some that generate wealth, some that you can't avoid, like death and taxes, and other ones that you can change, which we call maintenance. So the idea is to cut down those maintenance expenses, all the expenses that maybe we could do it cheaper, maybe we don't have to do it at all, take that money and invest it into things that actually make wealth, which should be improving your land, maybe fencing, maybe water developing. Those things make it easier to make a profit. Like if we hadn't doubled our stocking rate on our ranch, we wouldn't be making any money. In fact, we'd probably be broke. If we'd have just continuous graze and grew all our own hay and not made any changes, I don't think we'd be here today. But we've made changes that put us in control of our business. We could deal with the bank. I mentioned about the bank earlier. Like we've gone from you know over a million bucks to zero loan to back in the middle. And we've moved the bank loan to wherever it needed to be to serve us. The bank never touched the bank loan. We told them what we wanted. They agreed. That's powerful. And if you can borrow money, you can say, well, gee, this is going to work. I can see it's going to work. Borrowed money isn't good or bad. It's just a tool. Like It's hard to get into details here, but the holistic management process would help you say, plan for a profit, spend your money more wisely. When you spend your money more wisely, you get better results. And that's pretty general, but that's about all I can do. Sorry, Grant. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Next up, we have Colin Toner and Casey. Casey, are you going to ask the question? No. Come on, Casey. You know more than him anyway. <laughs> so the question is, is um, your water sites, your water distribution as it coordinates to your better range management? Like, your, you know, how if you're, how your distance from the far end of your field to your water hole and what's a a good idea like you know you want it under two miles you want it under a mile or however you want to look at it yeah you bet i i'm i've had that question quite a few times uh i i'm going to tell you a bit of a story first uh, i went to a ranch in nevada they were a million acres this is a pretty big ranch and we drove across it it took us like a whole day to drive across this ranch and they got to one point and he said, and now this is in the desert, mind you. And he said, yeah, 
you notice that this is our best grass and I'm looking around going where, right? <laughs> There's like nothing but shrubs and brushes here. And he said, the reason our grass is the best here is because it's nine miles from the nearest water site. So the cattle never even show up here. Okay. They need some water development. That was my first advice to them. We got to get some kind of water development. Even if you had to haul a semi of water in here once a day and then have some cattle here, you'd get some, you know, you'd be able to manage it. Um, so yeah, definitely distance to water is a factor. In my operation, I like to have at least one water source on a quarter of land. So that's 160 acres, right? So where it is on that quarter, you know, maybe they're walking a little further on one quarter because it's in a, you know, down in the corner instead of in the middle, but at least one water site per quarter. You know, I don't know, I don't have any scientific background behind that, but that seems to be a, a nice uh, balance. The more water development you can do, the better you're going to manage your land, right? If I could get two sites per quarter, I'd probably have a little bit better management. You got to weigh out that cost in the long term. Um, if you've got a long term lease on that land or you own land, yeah, I might put in a pipeline and put four water sources on a quarter because I know I'm going to have it for a long term. Whereas on rented land, or, you know, I'm willing to, you know, just leave it at that one water site and walk them a little farther because, you know, I could lose the land next year and how much money am I, you know, willing to put into that piece of land to, to make that work. So my two cents, uh, it varies depending where you are, what you're doing, but yeah, nine miles is a little far to walk for water. Well, that's a good question, Colin. And like on our particular place, we have a lot of natural water. So we've done very little water development. So I'm probably not the best one to answer that question. I would think there's no problem in animals walking half a mile, but that's just my opinion. I was at a conference at one time and they were talking just the same topic and said, how far can cattle walk? And, you know, half a mile, a mile, whatever. One guy finally got up and he said, well, then where he was from Africa. And he said, our cattle walk two days out to where the grass is. They graze for a day and then they walk two days back. That's a little extreme, but that's, you know, you, you can figure that out on your own. But part of the financial planning that we just talked about is deciding, is it more important to develop the water? Is there somewhere else I should be investing my money? Because the money you invest to make your land better and your business more profitable is like an investment. So don't get caught up and say, well, I got to have water every so many yards. Say, what's my weak point in my business? Is it my grass? Is it my water? Is it something else? And address that and address them in order. So address the weakest one first. When you get that improved, then go to something else. But don't get hung up and say, well, gee, everybody says you should have water every quarter of a mile. That's not necessarily what's weak on your business. Make it work for you. Remember that you're the expert on your ranch. Nobody else's. You're the number one expert. Use your knowledge. Use your expertise. Make it happen. So, so true, Don. I, mean, I, I know you made the comment earlier about trying to get to one herd, right? It's better to manage one herd than two herds. And one of the things that I found on my ranch, because of my context, which is very important because every farm is different. We went to one herd on our big cell one year. Uh, it's 1,100 acres. So we, moved, we, we ended up running 800 yearlings on this, this herd. And what happens, though, is we have, I believe on that cell, we have 13 water sites. And all of a sudden, 800 head on some of these water sites, and that was a huge draw on water. And we're using wells from, you know, my landowners. 
And all of a sudden, 800 head come out and start drinking from the well, and, and it starts demanding that much water at a, it, you know, at 12 o'clock in the, and my landowner is trying to have a shower and they run out of water, right? That's not going to work. That's, they're going to run out of water. And how long am I going to be able to use their water? So what happened in, in our situation, because we are very limited water, I was just about ready to boot you, Don, when you said you have no water issues, because uh, we have all sorts of water issues here. Like we, we have wells that are two gallons a minute. And that's what my landowners rely on for their house. And I'm trying to use that for the cattle. So what we did is we broke it into two herds because the water issue, it's more economical for me to run two herds to have a little bit extra labor but to be able to reduce the stress on the animals, right? They're not fighting over water. The, the stress on my landowners, because they're not running out of water, and that strains the relationship between me and them, I back down to running two herds on that cell. So every year now, we do two cells on that 1,100 acres be, because of water issues. So every farm, a con, the context is so important. Um, if I had 25-gallon-a-minute wells, that would be totally different but I have, you know, one and a half to two minute wells. So we've got to keep that uh, in, per- in perspective to the farms as well. So yeah, I, I tried the 800 head in one cell and it, it didn't work in this environment. So um, just, a, just a comment on water, I guess. It made for some really good pictures though. <laughs> and a lot of stress on the people and the, the animals because your gains drop dramatically when your animals are water stressed all the time. Right. That's a huge issue in in gains on your animals. Um, next is Tom. Tom Kravix, are you ready? I'm a little nervous bringing this up, but my thinking uh, is that when it comes to old grass, we shouldn't be very concerned about letting grass get old. What I have found is that particularly in the drought, just as as important as when uh, we have lots of moisture is keeping the grass uh, in what I call the sweet spot. And that's just before it goes into reproductive phase. And that's kind of what I was taught when I uh, took holistic management in back in 2000 uh, from our instructors. Uh, but that's not what I'm hearing from, um, from you, Stephen and Don. And I was wondering if you could just comment on that. Sure, I can comment on that, Tom. Good, good question. What we try to do is have the grass fully recovered. And that's, you know, that's a difficult term to define. The best definition I know of grass that's fully recovered is that it's ready to flower, which would fit pretty well with what you said, I think. You said the reproductive stage. But you need to look at the slowest growing plant that was the most severely grazed. And when it's ready to flower, then you graze because we're trying to manage for diversity. So we want to increase the diversity and you increase the diversity by giving a longer recovery so the slow growing plants have more time to grow. And when you do that, I don't think your nutrition will suffer at all. Like we, we, we're going 85 days, which is quite a long time, longer than most people go, but our nutrition is always good. So I, I think it's the idea of the slowest growing plant that's the most severely grazed has to be ready to flower. And in a lot of cases, like one of the perfect examples, if you have alfalfa and uh, orchard grass, they're quick growing and if you graze when they're ready to grow you'll always have alfalfa and orchard grass you'll never get bunch grasses you'll never get the ground covered so sometimes you need to manage for what you want not what you have and again you know this is 
everybody needs to make their own decisions. When I said 60 to 90 day recovery, that's a lot of range. And you need to pick and find out what works for you in that range. I think if you're going over 60, it's probably short. I could be wrong. I think if you're going over 90, it's too long. Because once you get, when the plants are ready to flower, then they actually close down their photosensitization. That's not the right word, photosynthesis. And they're green, but they're not absorbing any energy, so you're really not gaining anything. If you knock them down or graze them, then there's some new growth. Now you're capturing more solar energy. And that's what we're trying to do on our land is capture the maximum amount of solar energy. I hope that's helpful. I'll let Steve comment, and then maybe I'll come back to your question again, Tom. Thank you. Yeah, Tom and I have had this debate lots. To me, it's a the ability to change is a is a tool. And and some years I'll have a, you know, I'll aim for a 35 to 40 day rest period. And other years I'll aim for a 60 to 80 day rest period. It depends on your environment. It depends on the situation. It depends on the, you know, it, did we have a drought last year? Or did we have a wet year last year? To me, there's a range in there. I know ideally for for one situation, maybe a 40 day rest period is ideal. Maybe a 90 day rest period period is ideal. Nature never did the same thing every year. And that's where I bounce back and forth is, is, you know, one year, like last year, I did a very fast rotation, right? My yearlings came in, we aimed for a 35 day rest period on the first cycle. We wanted a, a little bit longer rest period on the second cycle. And I actually got a third cycle on that in my environment. But if you're in uh, uh, Georgia, right, your rest periods are going to be different than if they're in Alberta. And every year they might be different in Alberta. Um, I think that that change is one of our tools. And, and I agree with you 100%, Tom, that sweet spot is where we're collecting the most carbon. We're, you know, we're putting the most exudate down. So that's a big, you know, that's an important part of what we're doing. We've got to be putting those, car that, you know, the, that glucose into the soil. But other years I need to let something go to seed and, and re replenish the seed bank. Right. And leave residue and, and, you know, knock it to the ground. So I think it's a, a mixture of all of them. There, there's lots of different recipes or, or schools, schools of thought on, on regenerative grazing. And I think there's a, there's a happy medium between all of them that maybe we need some flexibility on that. So you want to touch on that again, Don? Sure. Do you want to make comment, Tom, before I go again or? <laughs> well, I, I better not. I think this is uh not the forum to have this discussion. Uh, it's because it's uh, Steve and I have hashed this around. I don't know how many times. Um, one thing that I do know is that from uh, research that was done in 2001, what was found was that the X dates uh, released by the plant, it's released the most at in the sweet spot. And that's just before reproductive uh, phase. And then once it goes, the plant goes into reproductive phase, the exudates that are going to the soil to, to feed the biology is very limited. And those exudates, uh, the sugars go into the, the formation of the seeds. And I don't want to be there. I want to be feeding the bugs as much as I can, like the, the soil biology as much as I can. Yeah. So like I said, it's, uh, it's uh, probably a bigger topic than, um, than what we could cover here tonight. Thanks for that, Tom. I'll just make a couple of quick comments. Um, number one is that when you say reproductive, I think that's flowering. I'm not sure, but I think that's what you're referring to. So when the plant's ready to flower, it's not going to be as active anymore. So you want to get it grazed at that stage. 
we think with our diversity, we need somewhere around 85 days, between 80 and 90 days for that to happen. What we found is when we started to graze better and give more recovery, at first our grass got taller and you could notice like the grass all over, man, is that room ever tall? But then after a few years, what we noticed is the grass got much, much thicker. thicker. And that's where your volume comes from. And that's where your nutrition comes from because it stays vegetative. Even at 85 days, it's vegetative. I mentioned a few minutes ago, we took that grass sample in October and it was 85 day grass, sent it to the university. They read the feed test and they said a second cut alfalfa. It wasn't, it was just the land is that healthy. So I think that when you increase the, like when you go with, I'm going to call it a moderate recovery, you're going to see better results and things are going to be better. I agree. That's going to work. But I think if you go a little bit past that, the idea of the plant is ready to flower and it's the slowest growing plant is ready to flower, that you'll get even better results. And I was at the university, or not at the university, but in Saskatoon one time, and I was giving a little talk, and I was talking about when a plant's ready to flower, it's fully recovered, you should graze it again. And after I was done, a professor came up and he said, well, every plant that's ready to flower isn't necessarily fully recovered. And I said, well, you're a professor. I'm not going to argue with you. I believe you. How do you tell when full recovery is? He says, I don't know. I said, well, I think my answer is better than yours. I'll let it go at that. Thanks for your question, Tom. You bet. That's awesome. Thanks, guys. One of the things that I just want to point out to everybody here about this conversation, to me, it's really cool to listen to Steve, Don and Tom, who are all grazing experts. They have all made this stuff work. But one of the things I really want to point out is just it's okay to have differing opinions and it's okay to agree to disagree on things as well. So just a side note. That's that's just your opinion, Amber. It is just my opinion and you better take it, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) We do have one last question. Uh, So from the Grass Whisperer, can you talk about the decision making during the growing season to build time off or family time? Sure, that, that's a great question. And that's part of being flexible and part of, you know, everybody's unique. And if you need a holiday and you say, okay, I'm going to have a holiday on the 15th of July for two weeks, and you put your cattle somewhere and they can look after themselves for two weeks, what's wrong with that? You used to overgraze your whole business. Now you overgraze one or two pastures for a couple of weeks, doesn't make any difference at all. You need to take care of your people. And your grazing plan will you allow the flexibility to do that. And, you know, so many people get hung on and say, oh, i got to move those cows if they're going to overgraze. Well, gee, you've been overgrazing for 20 years. What if you overgraze one pasture this year? It doesn't make a bit of difference. You need to care for your people. Like holistic management, my definition is care for your people, improve the land, and make a profit. But every one of you is unique, and you need to do that in a way that suits you and suits your business. So not a problem. Plan your holidays and make them happen. And when you do that and you write that kind of stuff down, you know, like maybe it might be in your written goal. We're going to have a family holiday every year. All of a sudden now my wife, my children have all got the right to come in and say, well, where's that holiday, Dad? You know, you promised that it's been five years. We haven't had one. I'm not walking my talk. I need some help. Go ahead and make it happen. Won't hurt a thing. It'll make everything better. Troy, you made me laugh. Because I, I just know Troy, he's like the, the summer camping king of everybody. Uh, all he wants to do is go camping in the summer. So uh, I agree with you. The people is, you know, one of the most important parts. 
we don't just because we make all these paddocks and we make all these plans doesn't mean they they can they don't have to change. A good example, quite a few couple of years ago was 2018. My wife and I planned that we were going to go to Colombia to a friend's wedding. Right, we had this trip planned. We were going to be gone for two weeks, ten days, or two weeks or something. And the hired hand I had at the time just wasn't reliable. Right, like I'm like I can't leave. I can't leave. Like this was in my mind. I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. I can't go. The, my hired hand is not capable of taking care of this for 10 days. And I stopped myself and I said, you know what? No, the people are more important. We need to get away. We're going to go. Um, just because I have all these paddocks doesn't mean I have to use them. Um, I plan to open up. I think I remember I, I set up, uh, uh, I think the one, the big, the big herd we had, uh, we opened up four or five paddocks at a time, just opened all the gates. They had two water sites and a dugout to drink out of, right? Like I had no worries that they would, they could survive for that amount of time. Yes, I'm going to overgraze a little bit. We're going to hurt some of those paddocks. We're not going to get the stock density that we're desiring. You know, I'm, I'm not doing my original plan. Like this was, this was really hard for me to open up five or six paddocks all together because I'm supposed to be doing this rotational grazing. And this was on six different grazing cells, right? Another, another pasture, I opened up three paddocks and made sure that I called a neighbor to come and make sure the water system was working. And I, I opened the gates and let them drink out of the dugouts, right? At that point, I was managing for the people. I wasn't, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things we got to do. And uh, I know, I know Troy's going to appreciate that. You can go camping for a week and open up three or four paddocks. It's not the end of the world because next year I'm going to make sure those paddocks I treat really nice and we rotate them properly. And nature will forgive one mistake, right? Nature doesn't like to forgive the same mistake year after year after year, but she will miss, you know, she will forgive one mistake. So that is an important part. Some years I graze for the land, some graze, some years I'm grazing for the cattle, right? If it's really hot out, I give them the bush. I give them two or three paddocks and let them graze into the bush. They can come out during the, you know, in the evening to graze the open paddocks, but they have the bush during the summer or sorry, during the, the hot spell in the middle of the day. So it depends what you're grazing for. We can change our priorities on who we're grazing for people, land, cattle, whatever. Uh, and I think that's an important point. The, the people are, are an important part of this and we got to keep them all happy. Right, dear? So we're going to Columbia in February? This is what I'm hearing out of this. <laughs> that's such a great note to end on, I think. Steve, do you want to close us out? Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Don. You are a uh, huge inspiration to me. You've been around for, you know, in my in my life, you've been a huge mentor of mine for so many years. And I just want to express how grateful I am for all the information and all the, the time you've spent with holistic management and helping young guys like me, although I'm getting older now. But back when I met you, I was a young guy. And I really appreciate all the time you put into this industry and into holistic management. And uh, it's just an honor to have you here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve, and thanks, Amber, and also thanks to everybody that tuned in. It's a wonderful privilege. I love to share my ideas. I've been practicing holistic management since about 1985 on my own ranch, and I've taught holistic management started about 1990 and quit about three years ago. So, you know, holistic management is very important to me. And when my wife, Bev, and I decided to teach, what happened to us is we always, we thought we had a good life and we had a good ranch. And holistic management came along and it just made it blossom into unbelievably good, you know. 
things are good and they keep getting better, we can deal with that. And I looked around at our society in Western Canada, and there's a lot of people that aren't, they don't think life is good. They're not really enjoying it. They're struggling. They're, you know, they're hurt. And we thought, well, holistic management helped us find an answer. Maybe it could help other people. And that's why we've talked and traveled. And every time I get an opportunity, I'm just thankful because that's my goal is to help share what has helped me be successful so that every one of you can be more successful. And I really believe totally in my heart that every one of you can be more successful going ahead than you've ever been up until today. All you need to do is apply some of these things to your business, take care of your people, improve the land. And when we started out tonight, we had on our our list about mental health and didn't get much discussion. In fact, it didn't get any, which I understand. But I want to just touch on it briefly that, you know, mental illness is a real issue. And it's a real issue this year because of the drought. So much uncertainty in the world over, you know, finances and COVID and whatever else you want to name. So I would really encourage every one of us to go home from this talk tonight and say, I'm going to strengthen my basic relationships with my partner, with my family, with my community, because we need that. We can't succeed as individuals. And my suggestion to every one of us, including myself, the best thing we can get or do to get through the drought is to become more loving and more lovable. So it's been a wonderful evening. Thank you.